Okay, it is Wednesday, April the 29th, and this is the Covenant Presbyterian Men's Morning Bible Study. We are working our way through the letter, or as I like to say, the sermon to the Hebrews. Hey, by the way, there's a a substantial reason why I would call it the Sermon to the Hebrews, but we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 12, and uh, we're also happy to have listening in members of Covenant Presbyterian Church in general. We're so glad that you Covenanters, including the ladies of the church, Uh, Our sisters in Christ uh, are listening in as well, and I really appreciate the the feedback that I get from you all by way of uh, email and text and all that. So anyway, glad we got a lot of folks listening in on this Sermon to to the Hebrews. Uh, Let's get started with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for your goodness, your mercy, and your love toward us. And we rejoice that in a time of uncertainty, uh, you are the sovereign one who rules over all. And this reminds us that we always live in a time of uncertainty, but we always live in a time of certainty. It's the paradox. Life is a mist and a vapor. We do not know what a day brings forth. The Bible tells us that very clearly. And so there is uncertainty. And yet there's a great certainty. Certainty. You are the one eternal, unchangeable God who has existed without beginning and shall exist without end forever and ever. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, and we we dwell under your almighty care. We give you thanks, and we rejoice in that. We thank you for being our Father through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us now as we study your word. And grant us grace to build us up in faith. We pray for your church, the body of Christ throughout all the earth. And we pray, Lord, that as we grow and bear fruit, others also would grow and bear fruit. And that more and more people around the world would come to know you, the true and living God, through Jesus Christ, your Son, whom you have sent into the world. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, okay, men and... uh, Covenanters, as we uh, are wrapping up uh, this study of the letter or sermon to the Hebrews, uh, let me make a correcting comment. I I have, throughout this study, referred to the original audience, that's how we refer to the original recipients of the letter, or original hearers as the original audience, uh, as though they were in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, I've used illustrations, figurative illustrations about uh, them huddled in a house and then uh, the speaker, the preacher to the Hebrews pointing, as it were, across the street to the temple standing in Jerusalem where sacrifices are still being offered by the Levitical priesthood and so forth. Well, let me give you a correction. It's not necessarily definitely sure that these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish Christians, of the first century were, in fact, in Jerusalem. We really don't know that. There's, it's not, that's not internal to the letter. Some scholars think they may have been in Rome, and some scholars think they may have been elsewhere, part of the what's called the diaspora 
the, the spreading out of the Jews from Jerusalem due to uh, persecution upon Jews that had come first from the Romans uh, for a time, and then these believing Christians uh, being pushed out by uh, the, the Jewish establishment community or their own families in the first century. So we don't really know where, where they were located. That doesn't really matter, other than I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't being overly dogmatic about their location. Um, so, moving on, I, I want to go back to uh, a passage. We, we, we came through verse 17, but as I, I forgot or didn't have time to work in a really good quote, that uh, has to do with that verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we noted the juxtapositioning of those phrases. Strive for peace with everyone. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, in, in as much as it depends upon you, uh, seek to live peaceably with all people in as much as it depends upon you. So this is echoed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we commented last time that uh, striving to live peaceably with all people does not meaning peace at any price. That is, it doesn't mean peace at the compromise of our faith or the denial of our faith, or uh, peace which would require us to sin against our Lord. So let me li- read you a great quote here on this theme. It's from, uh, uh, from uh, an author, a commentator named John Brown, who was a Scottish uh, pastor uh, uh, in previous centuries. So here's the quote. If we can live in peace with all men it is so much the better. But if peace with men cannot be purchased except at the expense of devotedness to God, then we must we must willingly submit to the inconveniences arising from having men to be our enemies, knowing that it is infinitely better to have the whole world for our enemies and God for our friend than to have the whole world for our friends and God for our enemy. Isn't that a great way of saying it? If we can live in peace with all men, it is so much the better. But if peace with men cannot be purchased except at the expense of devotedness to God, which is our holiness, then we must, we must willingly submit to the inconveniences arising from having men to be our enemies, knowing that it is infinitely better to have the whole world for our enemies and God for our friend than it is to have the whole world for our friends and, for, and God for our enemy. So, yes, let's, let's not let our friendship with the world get in between us and our God who is indeed a consuming fire. Well, we press on now at verse 18, and we're remembering one of the great themes of the letter or sermon to the Hebrews is 
the uh, the superiority, of course, of Jesus Christ, and uh, derivative from that, the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. And now uh, this is going to be demonstrated for us. The author is going to make reference to two different localities, beginning at verse 18, two different mountains. But he's using these in figurative, we have to think uh, symbolically as much as geographically, okay? And, and those two mountains are Sinai and Zion. But again, uh, Zion, uh, uh, Mount Zion, where uh, the geographical mount upon which geographical Jerusalem is located. But again, we want to be thinking symbolically, spiritually, and not merely physically, geographically. All right, so we begin at verse 18. And the preacher to these Jewish Christians says to them, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. All right, the, the author here, the preacher, makes no direct reference to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, but that's exactly uh, that to which he is making reference. This is a very clear allusion to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It is a recounting of Exodus you know, 19 and Exodus 20 and so forth. He says, For they, the Israelites, verse 20, they, the Israelites, could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. That's a direct quote, and uh, it's, it's coming uh, from the book of Exodus uh, around the, the, the giving of the law. It's cited from Exodus 19, verses 12 and 13. Indeed, back now to verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. All right. So there's one uh, visual, one experience. And the author to the Hebrews is saying, that's not your identity. That's not where you're about. You haven't been brought to this mountain. That's the mountain of the old covenant, the giving of the law and the terrors, the darkness, the smoke, the thunder, the unapproachability of it all, the fear, right? The fear that struck the people at Sinai. He's telling these, these, these poor, marginalized, ostracized Christian Jews, that's not who you are. That's not your relationship with God. He says, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. So what I want you to get here is that the, the references to Sinai, of course, historically, Moses, uh, geographical, real-time history, etc., real geography. But now when he refers, but, but, but the point there was the spiritual relationship with God. Your spiritual relationship with God is not based on that 
condemnation of the law. That's not who you are. There's no longer this, this need to appease God, Yahweh, through the offering of these blood sacrifices because you are condemned by the law and under your sin, right? No, he's saying you have come to Mount Zion. Now, when he says to Mount Zion, read this in context. He's not referring to the physical geographical Mount Zion upon which the physical geographical Jerusalem is built. There is a physical geographical Mount Zion. There is a physical geographical Jerusalem, right? You can get in an airplane or before COVID-19 shutdown, at least, you could get in an airplane and go there. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a spiritual reality, which the physical is but a symbol of. He's talking about a spiritual reality of which the physical, historical, geographical Zion and Jerusalem were but earthly pointers, earthly pointers to the spiritual reality. And he's saying to these believing Jewish Christians, you have come to Mount Zion and listen to the city of the living God. You've come to heaven. If the, and he says it right there, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, men, members of covenant, we've got to get this. This is hugely important. And it's right here in the Bible. You got to make this shift. This is the shift from old covenant to new covenant. In the old covenant, physical Jerusalem which is on a map of the earth and is on the earth, physical Jerusalem, on physical Mount Zion, with that physical temple, was was God's declared dwelling place with his people. That was the whole point of, of David establishing Jerusalem as the capital, of Solomon building that temple in Jerusalem, of the Shanekinah glory coming down, onto that temple, right? That was all Old Covenant reality. And the Old Covenant reality was but a pointer, a foreshadowing, a physical earthly symbol of that which was the true reality. And the the true Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, is the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's the Jerusalem that matters. That's the Jerusalem that matters. And that's the Jerusalem, the heavenly city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem that we, through faith in Christ, have been brought into. Right. What does the Bible say? You, believers in Christ, you, new covenant Israel of Jesus Christ, you, the people of God in Jesus Christ, you, you, 
by the blood of the Son of God shed for you, who by his blood made a new and living way into the most holy place. And he is there as an anchor that we might enter in. Right? So that we might enter into the most holy place by faith, in the Spirit, worshiping God. And it's, it's going to be an absolutely fulfilled reality when the kingdom comes, when the new creation is unfolded, when, or when we, as we, our souls go to heaven, when we die. But it's an experience, it is a reality now. I'm going to follow up on this. But you got to make the shift. The Jerusalem that matters now is the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, and you have been brought there through faith in Jesus Christ. You. You, believer in Jesus Christ, united to Jesus Christ, He is there. And He has brought you there. That's where your identity is. That's where your spiritual experience is. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and listen to this, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have been brought there. Now this is, this is spiritual reality. And by the way, and by the way, do you get this? That we can apprehend this only by faith. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So what I like to do, and those of you who have seen me and heard me preach this sermon from Isaiah 6, and you've heard me say, right? You've heard me tell, recount the story of Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah was in the physical temple in Jerusalem. This would have been the 8th century B.C. In the year that King Uzziah died, 742 B.C. The prophet Isaiah was in that physical temple built by Solomon. But what happened? He had a vision. The veil was pulled away. And then where was he? Well, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, suddenly, because the veil was pulled away, he was in the heavenly Jerusalem. He was in the heavenly temple. He was in heaven. He, he was right before the throne. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. What temple? The temple of heaven. And, and I cried out, woe is me, for I'm a, man, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. All of a sudden, you see, he went from physical Jerusalem, physical temple, the veil gets pulled away, and where is he? He's in heaven. Well, and you've heard me say, the same thing would happen for us. When we gather together in the Lord on the Lord's day, we're together in worship, in spirit. Our hearts are united, praising God. 
Well, if the veil got pulled away, guess what we would see? We'd see what Isaiah saw. And we'd be gathered together with the saints, triumphant around the throne. We'd see angels and archangels. They're all around us. Heaven isn't someplace far, far, far away. It's another dimension, and it's right on the other side of... It's, it's here. We just can't see it. We're not there fully, but we are there. We're there in Christ. We just couldn't bear it. So this is the point. This is the, the point of Hebrews 12. We, in our union with Christ, we, through his, we, we remember Hebrews 4, we have, a, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens. And he's there on our behalf. And in union with him, we are there. And he has made a new and living way for us to enter. And what? What does it say? Therefore, let us draw with confidence. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near? Yeah, draw near. Well, if I'm standing here on the earth, how do I draw near to the throne of grace in heaven? I do that by faith. I do that through the Holy Spirit, the communion of the Holy Spirit. I do it through union with Christ who is there. This is a spiritual reality and it's glorious. It's absolutely glorious. And that's the reason that when you gather for worship on the Lord's Day, there, 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 there is to be no mumbling. There is to be no lackadaisical singing of hymns. There, there, is, to be, there is to be no, you know, checking a box. If you could see what was going around, if we could see what, the, what Isaiah saw, if we could see what the Apostle John saw, he said this, says exactly the same thing in Revelation. Revelation 1, I was in the Spirit. I was worshiping on the Lord's Day. So on Sunday, first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Now granted, he was in exile, probably alone. I don't know. But he was in the Spirit. He was in worship on the Lord's Day. And suddenly, the veil was pulled back. What did he see? He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus. In his glorified existence. And what did the Apostle John do? He fell down on his face as though he were a dead man. He saw, he heard angels. He, you know the opening of Revelation. Go and read it. He saw the elders around the throne. He saw angels and archangels and all kinds of stuff. But for most of all, first of all, he saw Jesus. Read that description of the risen Lord Jesus in his in his glory, in his heavenly glory. Right, if we could see what was going on, I guarantee you there'd be no boredom in worship on the Lord's Day. So we got to get this. That's why we're called to worship God in spirit and truth. And by the way, we're going to get there. If I get there, uh, it, it, there's a little tag on this. There's a little follow-up, so get ready when we get to the end of this passage. But look, we have been brought there. I mean, this is what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? Read the Bible. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to people who've already died and gone to heaven? No, he's talking to living Christians. I'm driving this home. I want you to get this. You, believer in Christ, y'all, y'all, 
gathered community of the church of Jesus Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Y'all have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. A great celebration. It's, it's, it's a festal celebration, a festal gathering. It's glorious. To the assembly of the firstborn. Now remember the firstborn in Israel were those at the time of the Passover prior to the Exodus, you know, they were they were the firstborn were the redeemed, the saved by the blood of the Lamb. They did not suffer death uh, as the angel of death passed through. Uh, it also has reference the, uh, to those who were consecrated to service in God's presence, the firstborn, but the the were were to be those who were dedicated to the service of the Lord. You read about that. Uh, certain Old Testament passages. But the Levites, the the Levitical priesthood, were the ones uh, who were redeemed for service as priests. And so this this passage, this reference to um, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven has to do with the fact that we are we are priests unto God. We are that kingdom of priests. We are the priesthood of believers. And so that reference to the firstborn has to do with those who were redeemed, the firstborn, consecrated to God, enrolled as his priests. Okay? Um, And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, those who had already died. So those who've gone ahead, we're there. We have this communion of saints. We talk about the communion of saints, which has to do with our fellowship with one another in life on earth, right? Among what's called the church militant, the church on earth, we have fellowship with one another. That is, we have communion with one another. But we also have, as the hymn says, mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. So when we enter into worship, you know, and we don't we don't pray to the saints. We don't, you know, we don't speak to our beloved mother or father, uh, you know, who have predeceased us or anything of that nature. But we do. We have this sense of you know we're worshiping. And by the way, I will say that there are times. This is just personal. I'm not. I'm not saying that this is a necessarily a good example or whatever. But I mean, there's a sense in which when I sing a particular hymn, right? Don't Nobody misinterpret this, take it the wrong way. Don't make too much out of it. But there, there are certain hymns when, that when I sing them, for example, I think of my mother, right? And I think of her singing this hymn. And uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know that she's singing that hymn in heaven. That would be, I would be saying too much. But there's a kind of communion in that sense. I, I can imagine my mother singing this particular hymn in a particular way that just sort of kind of connects with my soul, right? I mean, it's not an overly, don't make too much of it. It's not like an overly mystical or spiritual experience or anything. But the point is, the Bible is saying that we have been brought into this uh, congregation of the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect, those who have gone ahead of us. 
We are sharing in their worship in heaven. Our voices as we sing hymns of praise and as we offer prayers of praise before the Lord and before His throne, they are, those voices and our hearts, they're intermingled with the praise of the saints triumphant around the throne and that of the angels and the archangels. Okay, And we've been brought to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. See, this is in contrast to the old covenant. And to the sprinkled blood, that's his blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries, cried out from the ground for justice against Cain. The blood of Abel cried out for justice against Cain. The blood of Jesus cries out for mercy upon sinners who come to Him in faith. You see, is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's, that's really what this is saying. And, 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 and our identifying spiritual uh, experience, if you will, uh, our, identify, our spiritual identity is not with Mount Sinai and with the darkness and the blazing fire and the, and the gloom and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them and the fear the fear associated with that because we have a new covenant. We have a new covenant mediator. We have one who has borne that wrath of God. We have one who has perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. Get it? You see, we're not standing at as it were, naked at Mount Sinai. We're not standing guilty at Mount Sinai. No. We've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, by the blood of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We come sprinkled with His blood. We come with our sins forgiven and washed away. We come with the wrath of God against our sins completely absorbed and appeased by Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a glorious thing. This is marvelous. It's the gospel. How great is this? All right, now the preacher moves on. And, and now having told us and, and preached to this community, and this word is now preached to us, this gospel, and now he wants to give us a warning as, as he has done, as you know. You've been listening to this for a while. You know that this preacher is a good preacher. He is a good doctor of the soul. And, and because he loves his people, he gives them every now and then, he'll give them a little slap of discipline. 
as I've said before, he'll kind of pop the chain. He'll make them do a little gut check. A good pastor will do that from time to time. Right? I think he will. If he's a good pastor, he will. So here the good pastor, the good preacher to the Hebrews says at verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Make sure you do not ignore the word of God. For if they, the Israelites, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He's saying, look, don't, don't take this for granted. Don't be presumptuous. Don't be a fool. Don't ignore what's, what's being told to you. This is the very Word of God. All right, we're going to continue at verse 26. At that time, His voice shook the earth. But now He has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. All right. There's the warning. And I think it has two reference point applications. I think that the first reference point application is in the first century and the shaking that took place, the shaking that took place with the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the end of the Old Covenant era in A.D. 70. You know, that's been a major theme throughout this whole thing. The obsolescence, the growing obsolescence of the Old Covenant era, the Old Covenant epoch, Old Testament Israelite religion, which came to its end in A.D. 70. Old Testament Israelite religion came to its end in A.D. 70 with the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And that was the end of that era. That was the end of that world. That was the end of that age. That was a shaking and a removal in order that things that cannot be shaken remain, may remain. The new covenant. Nothing is ever going to undo what God has done in Jesus Christ. Nothing is ever going to undo the covenant, the new covenant, which God has made in Jesus Christ. Because that new covenant is going to continue 
I mean, the benefits of it, the fruits of it, the effects of it, the salvation of it are going to continue for all eternity beyond, beyond, I mean, when Christ comes again and beyond into the eternal glory of the new creation, which is, that's the ultimate reference point here. The ultimate reference point, of course, would be the second coming of Jesus, the last judgment, the eradication of all that is evil, sinful, the last and absolute total destruction of the last enemy, which is death, and the full, glorious unfurling of the new creation in all of its perfection, which will is a which is the ultimate fruition of the new covenant in Jesus Christ by his righteous life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, his glorious ascension on high, the restoration of all things, the regeneration of the cosmos, free from sin and death. That's the ultimate reference point here, right? But it was foreshadowed, it was foreshadowed, there was a foretaste of it, there was a little tremor, if you will, of it in AD 70 when the Old Testament, Old Covenant era came to its end and the New Covenant era was initiated. And we live in that era. We live in that era in which we are covered by the blood of the New Covenant and we are indwelt and accompanied by the Holy Spirit who has been poured out by the Father through the Son so that we live on earth as those who have already been raised from the dead. That's not, I mean, we, ours is a spiritual resurrection. We're already alive. Listen to this. We're already alive with the life that we're going to have after we die. I mean, eternal life, our eternal life has already begun. And that's the reason that Jesus can say, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Well, you say, well, hang on a minute. We all, everybody dies. People die every day. Oh, well, now, wait a minute. The body dies. That's right. But if the Spirit of God dwells in you, then how are you going to die? It's a great comfort for the believer. You're here one moment, you're there the next. I mean, I don't have any idea what that'll be like, but all of a sudden, you know, what? Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. I, I can't explain this. All I know is that Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's because whoever has the Son has eternal life. Do you have eternal life? Do you have Jesus Christ? Have you been born again as a child of God and adopted as his beloved? United to Christ? Have you been crucified with Christ? 
Have you been raised with Christ? How could you possibly die? You're not going to die. You're just going to be translated. You're going to be translated in the twinkling of an eye. There you'll be. There you will be. And then, woo! Yeah! Mount Zion. Heavenly Zion. The heavenly city. And then you'll see. Oh, yeah. You'll see innumerable angels in festal gathering. The assembly of the firstborn, the royal kingly priesthood around the throne, and you'll be joined in that. You'll, you'll be before the face of God, the judge of all, but you'll be covered by the blood of Christ to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, your loved ones who've gone before you. And to Jesus, there he is. Glory, hallelujah. The mediator of the new covenant by whose blood you were given a new and living way into the most holy place. Because his blood speaks mercy for you and not judgment, not condemnation. Is this not, is this not the best thing? I mean, come on. All right. So this business of the shaking has to do with, in a preliminary sense, what took place in the first century, A.D. 70, and the end of that old covenant era and the passing away. And we're living in this kind of this in-between time. That's right. And, and by the way, in this in-between time and, and the, the idea of that we are there, we have, we have come to the heavenly city. Well, for, for example, let us, let us read, for example, let me read for you what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus. I just want to read this to you. It's from the Bible. It's a prayer. Ephesians 1, 16 and following, and you got to get a run and start. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Ephesians 1, 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. All right? There it is. Christ's ascension into heaven, His resurrection and ascension into heaven, is, is, is this great power that God has worked in us. And then listen to what He says in chapter 2. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Past tense. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
It's all past tense. You have been brought to Mount Zion, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, in Christ, in your union with Christ by faith. He is there, you are there. It is a spiritual reality. It is hidden from our physical eyes. And therefore, and therefore we remember that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We are the citizens of heaven, dear brothers and sisters. We are. And, and this is a great theme that comes to us in this passage from Hebrews chapter 12. And let's keep going. we got to close it out, coming to the end of this section at the end of chapter 12. Therefore, how do we respond to this? We have received a kingdom that, that cannot be shaken. We have a relationship with God that can never be undone. We have our citizenship in heaven. We Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a hope that will never die through the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, and to an inheritance, an inheritance of glory, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, reserved for you in heaven. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. That's yours. It's a reality. It can never be taken away. It cannot be undone. It cannot be revoked. Therefore, how do you respond to this? Let us be grateful, verse 28. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, the old covenant kingdom of old covenant Israel, it was shaken and no more. And I mean, it hadn't been since, well, really, the uh, it really hadn't been much of a kingdom since the Babylonian exile. And that's another history lesson, but you know, it was, they came home, Cyrus the Great let them come home, and then they were overrun by the Greeks, and then they were overrun by the Romans. It was a very shaky kingdom. But not the kingdom that we've been given in Jesus Christ. That all that Old Testament kingdom, that was just a precursor. It was a shadow of things to come. It was a pointer. Okay? We've got a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, you want to know why we do worship the way we do worship in Covenant Presbyterian Church? Because that's the way we express reverence and awe. I'm not going to go down a little rabbit trail and a little, you know, digression that might sound a little bit critical of other worship services, which I have from time to time had occasion to be a part of, in which I didn't have any sense of reverence whatsoever. No sense whatsoever that I was in the presence of the Eternal and Holy One. Now, the people who were there, they might have thought, well, this is how we show reverence, but it just didn't register with me. 
Okay, but nevertheless, I'm not saying you got to do it the way covenant does it. I am not saying that nobody else does it right. I would never say that. I would never, ever say that. That's not the point. But the point is, the point is, we do worship the way we do worship, corporate worship on the Lord's Day and covenant, not because we're a bunch of stuffy Presbyterians, not because we're a bunch of stuck up, uh, you know, religiously inhibited, uh, boring, whatever. And I, my goodness, I hope nobody ever says worship is boring at covenant. It's not. Some people have a, you know, the, the, you know, not every service has to be as formal as ours. You know, and the, you know, I understand all that. I'm not, you know, I'm just saying that's how we, that's how we, so there's got to be some semblance of reverence and awe. I mean, we are not going to an informational seminar. We are not going to a self-help seminar here. You are not going to get uh, three tips on, uh, you know, how to improve your happiness quotient for daily life. It ain't going to happen. It just isn't going to happen. You're not going to have this experience of, oh, you know, Jesus is a cool dude. He's just a cool dude. We're going to chum right up next to him. Ask about the Apostle John, the apostle who leaned on Jesus' breast, the beloved apostle, the one who had the most personally close human relationship with Jesus. Just ask him what his reaction was when he saw Jesus in his heavenly glory. I fell down at his feet like a dead man. Right? Okay, so you get the point. I don't need to preach on this too much. Uh, but reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Some people make this comment. You hear it all the time. Well, you know, the Old, God, the Old Testament God was a God of wrath and judgment and condemnation. The New Testament God is a God of love and grace and mercy. Well, both of those statements are half-truths. Both of those statements are half-truths. Neither of those statements is completely true. It's true that the, the God revealed in the Old Testament is He is a God whose attributes include wrath and judgment. That's very true. He is also a God whose attributes include grace and mercy and steadfast love. It's very true that... The God of the New Testament is a God that is revealed as being a God of love and grace and mercy. That's very true. It's also, it's also very true that the God who is revealed in the New Testament is a God of wrath and judgment and condemnation. Because it's the same God. It's the same God. There's no Old Testament God versus New Testament God. If you have that thought, you just need to clean it out of your brain with Clorox. That's the most horribly unbiblical way of thinking about God that there could be. Get rid of, get rid of any kind of distinction or dichotomy or division or contrast between the so-called Old Testament God and the so-called New Testament God. There is one God who has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
He is a God who is holy, holy, holy. He's a God whose standard of righteousness is not ever compromised. And therefore, He is a God whose wrath against sin is revealed every day. He's a God of grace and mercy who in love sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the wrath-bearer, the atonement for sin. And His Son, Jesus Christ, willingly, willingly and voluntarily accepted His calling, His purpose in coming into the world and being the wrath-bearer. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God demonstrates, proves His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the same God, Old Testament, New Testament. One God. And and this God is a consuming fire. He always has been a consuming fire, and He always will be. A consuming fire against sin, against those, against rebellion, against uh, disregard for who He is. He is a consuming fire. And the question is, have you received His provision of the wrath-bearing substitute, Jesus Christ? Is He your shelter from the storm? Is He your rock of salvation? Your strong tower? His blood shed for you. Are you clothed in His righteousness? Clothed in His righteousness. So that you might stand before God with joy and not fear. That is, without fear of condemnation. Because the blood of Jesus cries out for you, mercy, mercy, mercy. What a wonderful, wonderful God we have. And to His name be all praise, honor, and glory. Our Father, we thank You for the glorious gospel of Your Son, Jesus Christ, whom You gave for our sake and for our salvation. Help us to receive and to believe what you say and to place our faith in you. Yes, and amen, Lord, we believe your word. Jesus Christ, all praise and honor and glory be to him, to the Father, to the Holy Spirit, one God, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen.